Good evening. I'm Mary Davis, chairperson of the Citizen Oversight Board, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this um, public forum. This is the second one we've had um, this year, and I'd like to introduce you to other members of the Citizen Oversight Oversight Board. Uh, far left is Nita Gonzalez. Um, Mark Brown is seated next to her. And to my right is Vice Chair Cisco Gallardo. And we're really pleased to have two special guests tonight, and we'll tell you a bit about them um, as we move along. Lisa Calderon is um, here. She's the uh, co-chair of the Colorado Latino Forum and um, chapter, Denver chapter chair. Co-chair. Oh, co <laughs> okay. And then we have, and some of you have already met uh, Sheriff Patrick Furman. And again, we'll give you a bit more about their, the reason they're here and uh, about their background. But first I'd like to um, tell you about what we're about, the Citizen Oversight Board. We're a seven-member volunteer uh, board appointed by the mayor and confirmed by the city council. And um, one of our responsibilities, major responsibilities, is to um, evaluate the um, independent monitor. And um, the independent monitor is here sitting on the front row. He's usually across here with us. He gets a reprieve tonight. He, he is able to sit out front. In addition to evaluating the independent monitor, we make policy recommendations related to um, police and sheriff department training, discipline, um, and other matters of concern. We are to keep informed of the issues that the community may have, and um, that's one of the reasons this quarterly um, public forum is so important, so we get a chance not only to keep you informed on what's going on, but also to hear from you. And that's why we always have a public um, comment section to these meetings. We do not have command um, authority, but we are the ears and eyes of the community, and therefore we serve a quite significant role. This board meets twice monthly, at least twice monthly, um, typically the first and third uh, Friday mornings in the web building. Those meetings are open to the public, um, except during the time when we're having to move into executive session. We meet quarterly with the sheriff, the executive um, director of safety, as well as the police chief. And those are also very important um, interactions because, again, we want to hear firsthand what's going on in those uh, departments that relate to the work we're responsible for. And so um, we're really pleased tonight to have um, one of those individuals with us, Patrick Furman, just to give you a little bit about his, his background, came on as sheriff, um, was it in October? October. In October. And um, Sheriff Furman has over 24 years of uniformed and jail management experience. He served as deputy chief of corrections for the McHenry uh, County Illinois Sheriff's Department. Um, from 2009 to 2014. 
and deputy chief and chief of corrections for the Lake County, Illinois Sheriff's Office from 2000 to 2009. In these roles, he's overseeing jail systems of hundreds of inmates in department staff, as well as managed multi-million dollar budgets. He's passionate about providing a high standard of care and custody to those involved in the justice system. There are a lot of other things on this sheet I could say, but I think that sort of gives a, a good overview of who you are. Sitting next to um, Sheriff Furman is Lisa Calderon. And I'm, again, Lisa has been with us on a, a number of occasions and pleased to have you back with us tonight. Um, Lisa is director of the Community Reentry Project in Denver, where she supervises six staff who work on behalf of formerly incarcerated persons for their successful transition back into the community. She's an adjunct faculty member at CU Denver's Ethnic Studies Department. She's taught in academia for over 10 years in the areas of women's studies, sociology, and criminal justice. She holds a master's degree, a law degree, and is currently working on her doctorate in education. Busy lady. And so um, the reason that these two uh, fine people are with us tonight is to discuss the new sheriff's department use of force policy. And it's up to you how you decide to do this and who goes first. Okay. All right. So you're on. All right. Okay. Um, well, I appreciate the opportunity to come here. Um, as uh, they mentioned this morning, actually, we released, uh, did a press conference and released our use of force policy. Uh, this is a policy that has been, uh, we've had a lot of people working on this for, for quite a while, and we're very excited. Uh, that we're able to put this document together. It's a result of a lot of collaboration from a lot of different groups. Um, and we think that we've got really a state-of-the-art policy. Um, so we were able to announce that this morning. Um, we're in the process now of uh, rolling that policy out. Uh, we've got our in-service training started with our staff, uh, actually beginning on Monday with our currently seated recruit class. Uh, following that, we'll uh, start with all of our supervisors and then move on to our deputies. That's going to involve a um, uh, some scenario-based training along with familiarization with the policy and, and uh, really what the policy is, it's a clarification of what we expect from our, from our deputies and with regard to how they treat the inmate population. Um, this is something, this is not, um, this is a, a part of a process that we were going through. This, this started uh, a while ago as we started working with the staff and helping them understand um, what it was that we were looking for, what it was that society was looking for in the communities in terms of the standard of care that we provide. Uh, so this is one step in that process. We've, we've been working with our staff for quite a while now in terms of focusing on de-escalation, um, the idea of stepping back when they have the opportunity to um, and de-escalate when they can. We're, we're, we've committed to putting all of our staff through uh, critical incident training um, by the end of this year. Uh, we believe that's a very valuable tool for them as they deal with this inmate population. Uh, we also understand that with the volatile uh, group that we work with, um, you know, we often have individuals come in and they're under the influence. Um, they have mental health issues. Um, oftentimes there is no choice 
uh, because we're responding to behavior and, and we understand that and we want to recognize that with our staff. But uh, what we want them to do and what we've been emphasizing with this policy is that uh, when they have the opportunity, we want them to step back, um, get supervision if they can, wait for backup, put together a plan of action and so they can go in and uh, really minimize the use of force if at all possible. This policy is part of a series of uh, reform tools that we've been implementing uh, along with our CIT training that I've already mentioned. Uh, we've been focusing very heavily this year on bringing staff in. Uh, we just graduated a class of 80 a couple of weeks ago. They're completing their FTO training now. Um, we're having a, a large promotional exam coming up. One of the things that was identified is that, you know, in order for these policies to work, uh, we need to provide proper supervision for our staff. And so uh, we're focusing on uh, providing that level, high level of supervision for them, uh, getting more command staff and more first-line supervisors in the, in the facility. Uh, as well as an emphasis on staff well-being. Um, you know, if we want our staff to make good decisions, uh, they have to be at the top of their game. They have to be taking care of themselves. Uh, and so it's important that we, we look out for their well-being as well as, as so that they can uh, perform to the level that we expect them to. Um, I think that's it. I want to leave some time for, for questions and answers specifically, and I know there was a handout, but I'll, uh, I'll uh, turn it over to Ms. Calderon. Great. Thank you. So I guess I want to start with by looking at the reason why we have the reform process in the first place. Marvin Booker, Michael Marshall, Emily Rice, people who've lost their lives in Denver's jails. So it's important to recognize that this is not just an administrative document, but this is born out of tragedy. And so I want to recognize the families who have had to go through that and are still going through the pain of that loss. So from a community perspective, we're very sensitive to that and to acknowledge that rarely do systems change on their own, particularly when it is for the benefit of the community first and foremost. Community often pushes them to change. So I also want to acknowledge the activists who for years have pushed this department to reform. The reform process didn't start with the report from the consultants. Reform started years and years before that with people pushing for better services in the jail, for people resisting jail expansion. Um, so this is just the latest iteration in reform. The process in which we were engaged involved both systems people, um, including sheriff uh, department staff, command staff, public safety staff, and community people. And as with all collaborations, um, it wasn't an easy process. So I don't want us to go away and to believe that all 44 people who were part of input into this process were always on the same page. But the process was a good one in terms of modeling how we need to come together between community and systems people and hear each other and our concerns and move forward with it as uncomfortable as it may be at times. The, some of the changes, actually a, a lot of the changes had in mind I think a lot of the concerns that community had. 
particularly about the cases that I mentioned before, but also just looking at that many of the exchanges that happen in terms of use of force incidents occurred with people with mental illness or physical illness, or where verbal altercations escalated into physical uses of force. So those were always, I think, at the forefront of our conversations. With the use of force policy, we are heading in the right direction. I believe it is consistent with community expectations of needing to see something radically different in terms of how we look at uses of force. And with that, I think it actually is pretty remarkable that we start with the preamble of reasserting people's basic human rights and dignity. So if you think about that, if people were actually afforded, everyone was afforded their basic dignity, we actually wouldn't be here talking about these issues. So that is first and foremost, and in recognizing that, built in the preamble is recognizing that all human life is valuable. There's no hierarchy of life. Deputy's life isn't any more important than civilian life. We want everybody to go home from that jail at the end of the day. Providing a safe environment isn't just about providing a safe physical environment, but also about providing a safe emotional environment. I have the privilege of being able to train in the critical incident team training that the deputies are going through and teach on gender trauma and incarceration and talk about how important it is, particularly for women, because we know that the jail population is a highly traumatized population, how to create safer environments where they can access services without having their trauma repeatedly triggered um, by the numerous things that can happen in a jail. Also part of the preamble is executing duties in a fair manner. I think this is something the Sheriff's Department is still continuing to work on. Fairness isn't just about for the most egregious cases. Fairness is every day doing business. We then recognize the extraordinary power, the legal power that deputies have um, that must never be misused or abused. And so that is explicit in the policy that these are special powers, which means that there's also a higher level of responsibility that goes with those powers. And with that also needs to be specialized training. So some of the um, general principles the sheriff already touched on in terms of de-escalation. From a community standpoint, um, I was able to observe, uh, again, the critical incident team training, the CIT training, where deputies are put through scenarios. And I was actually quite impressed. I was surprised, actually, about the, the level, the intensity, the um, effort that went into training deputies. And it would make me think, as I was watching those simulated situations, what would I do in those circumstances? And how deputies are being retrained to think about using other options besides hands-on and how really de-escalation is absolutely a skill that needs to be practiced and used repeatedly. Some of the other highlights uh, are the tactical options which include avoiding unnecessary risk and injury, avoiding creating or contributing to a situation of force, 
slowing down a situation to allow more time for options. And I think first and foremost is communicating. When you can talk to somebody to try that first, unless there is, of course, danger to life. So some of these examples, how they would play out in, in some of the cases that I've highlighted. So with Marvin Booker, uh, when we look at the policy, it prohibits chokeholds unless in a fight to protect life. It ceases the use of physical restraint after resistance has stopped. If they have stopped fighting, so should the level of resistance. And also to take a officer's body weight off of a person who's already in a prone position so as not to compromise their breathing. So these are things that are explicit in the policy. With the case of Isaiah Moreno, who had mental health issues and was self-harming, this is where CIT is put first and foremost in terms of how do you talk, how do you talk to someone in crisis rather than resorting to multiple tasing. And then with Jamal Hunter, when we look at the case of how a verbal exchange can quickly escalate and instead, rather than tasering and going hands-on, what CIT skills should the officers be using? When we look at implementation, so first and foremost, I, I, I definitely give credit to all of those people who spent their time in creating this policy. These were, again, an arduous and very thoughtful process. So there was a lot of hard work that went into creating the policy. But I think that the harder work is to come in implementing the change. So one thing is to have a clear implementation timeline. This is of concern, I think, from our community standpoint. If we say that it's at toward the end of the year or after every officer or deputy is trained, what does that actually mean for holding people accountable now? And what mixed signals does it send to the community and to deputies to know what they should or should not be doing. It's also important to have appropriate resources. So if we are expecting CIT to be, and de-escalation to be um, the you know, primary tool that's used in everyday situations, how are we investing to make sure that deputies aren't just going to a once a year training but are actually going through training and retraining and coaching and mentoring throughout the year. So we are looking at expanding funding for that. Um, so finally, I want to just touch on a few uh, what I see from a community standpoint of potential pitfalls with where we're going with this policy. And I refer to them as the four eyes. Um, one, you know, policies on use of force usually tend to look at the most egregious circumstances of injury. So that's the first eye. Um, and that's what this policy definitely has in mind about how to reduce injury and including um, death. But the second is indifference. And so challenging people who work day in and day out of the system to not be indifferent to the people who they are supposed to um, have care and protection for. Um, and I think that can be difficult when you become desensitized to doing your job over and over again and you are tired, et cetera. Um, and what goes along with that also is paternalism, 
treating people as if they are less than adults, less than intellectual beings, talking to them as if they don't have um, the, you know, their own sense of, of agency. So that's something else I think the Sheriff's Department needs to continue to work on. Um, the third eye is inertia. So we have a policy, but we also know, and I've worked uh, with the Sheriff's Department in, in that facility for seven years, every time we have major leadership changes, we almost start over again. And there's lots of changes that are always happening at the Sheriff's Department. And so to get people to move in the right direction collectively takes a lot of effort. Again, the system needs to continually be pushed to do the right thing and usually just doesn't do it because it thinks it's the best thing to do. And then finally, the fourth is incompetence. And I'm speaking specifically about cultural incompetence. Um, our jails are still primarily made up disproportionately of black, brown, and native people. And yet, we are seeing in a leadership shift having people who are not familiar with our communities. And so this also sets us back. So the Sheriff's Department needs to rebuild its cultural competence for um, working with disproportionately impacted communities of color. And the second point about incompetence is community engagement incompetence. There is a way that you talk to community. There is a way that you respectfully bring them into the conversation and follow through and listen to their recommendations. And so again, this process would not be as robust and meaningful if community was not at the table and pushed to be at the table to be heard. Thank you. Thank you. Any additional comments before questions and answers? Um, no, I think we could go in and Did you have your hand up? No. Okay. Okay. Um, so at, at this point, um, we can open the public uh, comment section. If you have questions, I uh, would ask our comments, ask that you come to the mic and give us your name. And um, we ask that you limit your comments if possible to three minutes. Sure. What I want to understand, and I'm in law enforcement myself, okay, how do you take the officer, the sheriff, the police officer that has a certain amount of upbringing and you put them in a uniform and they're, they're trained and they're all ready to go as far as their job requirement, how do you handle the officer that deals with the situation the way they are familiar from their upbringing, you know, whatever lifestyle they had at home. Doesn't that play a role in the officer and how they react to situations? In case in point, you know, I've got people on my staff that they're great as far as dealing with somebody one-on-one -on -one and the situation is calm, but once, you know, the person goes left, you know, they go left with them. How do, but that's not, but, and they're trained, and they, they've got in-service training, we've got in-service training. How do, you, how do you change that person enough where they don't revert back to what they were raised and what they, they, they think is the right way to handle a situation? How do, you, how do you deal with situations like that? I'm just curious. 
You know, I think back to uh, my Colorado Latino Forum co-chair, Rudy Gonzalez, and he really talks about less about competence and more about responsivity. So we all um, are uh, less competent or responsive in various settings and cultures. But it doesn't mean that we can't be, res our, our responsivity can't grow depending on those circumstances. So, um, you know, the Denver Sheriff's Department, I think, is actually in a position of strength because they are approximately 50% people of color. That means that is a wealth of experience and information from those communities that can be shared with their um, fellow deputies. And I think what hasn't been adequately capitalized is how do you share that experience to expand that competence or that responsivity? Um, I think the second part of that is repeated exposure to those communities. So if you are only work with those communities or interact with those communities when you are in a law enforcement role, that's a problem. Or in your law enforcement role, if it is not um, a more interactive kind of situation where you are continually the authority figure, that's a problem too. So I think creating more opportunities and situations for deputies, and there are deputies within the Sheriff's Department who want to do more community engagement um, of all cultural backgrounds, but there is not a mechanism for them to step into doing that kind of work in a consistent way. So I would say one of the first things is increasing the interaction aside from the kind of rigid hierarchy that we have between you know, this is my job, and then when I go home, I don't think about it anymore. Yes. My question, um, both for, thank you, Lisa, for your um, historical perspective and community lens, but I also would like to know from the sheriff and from you, you talked a little bit about implementation. Is, is there an implementation plan with timelines or no? There is, yes. Okay. Um, we, we are starting with a 10-hour in-service, which will include um, a familiarization with the policy and then scenario-based training. Uh, that's actually starting on Monday with our currently seated recruit class. Uh, that will then continue with our, our command staff, which is our majors, captains, and sergeants. Um, and once they're completed, that'll take a couple of weeks to get them through. Um, and then we'll start with the, uh, the deputies. Um, so our, our plan is, um, again, depending on the, the resources we get, but our goal is to get this all done by the end of the year. Uh, to coincide with our CIT training as well that we, we plan on getting done by the end of the year. And, and we all know that training is only as good as your ability to monitor, monitor it and evaluate it yes. as it's put into action. So you have a plan put together for that. Yes, okay. we've got, this is, this is not a once and done type of a thing. This is something <laughs> where we understand that we're going to have to continually train um, and not just in an in-service type of a situation. One of the um, one of the things we're working on, and I, I think I mentioned it, was uh, bringing more resources in terms of uh, supervision. Um, we're, we're very short with first-line supervision right now, and so um, a part of that is because we don't have the staffing for it. So as we bring our staffing on board um, and get our new recruits to hit the floor, um, that'll give us the ability to promote some additional people. We've been, we've been given allocation to promote, promote additional supervisors. Um, so the, the, the goal there is to get those supervisors into the floors. Uh, to mentor and create a mentoring relationship with the uh, deputies that they supervise. Uh, we're hiring some civilian schedulers to free up the sergeants from, from scheduling. They spend a lot of their time scheduling now. So we're trying to bring in some civilians to take over that task, again, to free them up, uh, to bring more resources to them. 
And then my last question is, generally when you have this type of um, shift uh, and policy change and implementation, is that tied somehow to their evaluation in terms of performance, job performance, that there, is that tied, this new policy, to how they handle that? The, the policy, the, the performance evaluations will be based on performance in general. Okay. Um, we don't have at this point something specific in the evaluation piece uh, that would deal specifically with use of force type stuff, if that's what you're asking. Would you consider that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And before we get into the public comment section, I'd like to acknowledge um, former manager of safety, Allocape, as well as um, Nick Mitchell, who played a role in staffing or supporting the um, formation of this policy. Do either of you have something you'd like to, to say at this point about the work that's been done? Sorry, Francisco. I didn't. Seriously, I was acting up. Okay. Thank you. And so now we'll open the public comment portion of this meeting. So Mr. Robert Chase is coming forth. Thank you. That is indeed my name. I'm That's Robert Chase. Name? That is my name. Thank oh, okay. you. You, you know me. I haven't had a chance to uh, look at the document in detail of uh, the new use of force policy, but I am, was struck by a, a few things. Uh, I think it's rather poorly written based on what I saw. Uh, the word diffuse, D-I-F-F-U-S-E, does not mean defuse, D-E-F-U-S-E. I've seen this more than once. Uh, it's, it is unfortunate to say that you're meeting with youth groups in an attempt to diffuse tensions between them and the police department because that means to spread them. And there is a similar misuse of the word. It's, it's on page 29 of the, as I recall. But um, I was drawn to that section, which uh, maybe this seems a little bit tangential, but uh, talking about the use of force against animals. And rather than deal with uh, the need, the, the judgment of an officer, whether, they know, whether or not the situation calls for them to enter an enclosed space in which a dog is, there's all this blather about uh, attempting to inform officers that dogs bark when they're happy to see people, among other things. Based on just what I had a chance to look into in, de in depth, I'm sure that the policy uh, needs to be rewritten in full because it's ungrammatical, it's, uh, it's poorly written. But I'd, I'd just like to address uh, another, I, perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I take a, a jaundiced view of, of things. Uh, you came on, immediately after that, Michael Marshall is asphyxiated in his own vomit with a spit guard. Uh, now, in glancing at this policy, uh, I see nothing uh, that seems to impinge on that directly uh, in that I suppose uh, that and I'm also, I've, has it not been found that they acted correctly according to the circumstances to deal with a person they thought was spitting bodily fluids on them and needed to be stopped, and that is the procedure. So in the, in the case of the last two killings, uh, notorious killings in the jail, uh, uh, Booker, Mr. Booker and uh, uh, 
uh, Mr. Marshall, uh, we have people who are found to have acted completely in accordance with policy, and I see nothing in these changes that would address that. Uh, and speaking as someone that takes a rather cynical view of the situation, it seems to me that a system which is full of corruption and bad actors uh, wags the dog. They, uh, you came on, uh, the reformer, uh, they killed another inmate, and they did so according to policy. Is, am I completely wrong? Or, or, or when, I, when I hear people talking about training programs and improving cultural sensitivity uh, or the like, I am dismayed. Uh, clearly, the problem is that we have bad actors in place who must be fired at a minimum or criminally prosecuted and fired. And there are plenty of, I'm sure there are plenty of all ethnicities to go around from the looks of things. So I, I'm just wondering what is going to be accomplished as opposed to tweaking policies, which don't even seem to address the two recent killings. So you have a question? Yeah. What, what, where is the reform in all this? Is there any or possi a possibility of any? I think, you know, as Ms. Calderon pointed out, even in the preamble of the, the use of force policy, it's this idea of the valuing of human life, um, looking at situations differently, looking at individuals as individuals, um, taking the opportunity to step back and evaluate a situation um, and attempt to de-escalate it when they can. Did the people who killed Michael Marshall act in accordance with policy? Would they have been acting in accordance with policy after these changes are enacted? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're not doing, we're not taking policy and going back and reevaluating circumstances based on the policy. Um, the Michael Marshall is still being investigated right now. It's, it's done, the criminal piece is done, but the administrative piece is still being uh, finalized. Well, could, would, do you, is there anything in these new, in these changes which might prevent a situation like that from repeating? A person going into seizures, uh, spitting, or being perceived to be spitting, uh, and jailers, through ignorance or malice or some combination of the two, inappropriately applying a spit guard and asphyxiating the, the inmate on his own vomit. Is there, is, is there any? The, the, the policy would require that if the, the deputies have the opportunity to de-escalate a situation, it's very vague. rather than responding to a situation. There's to nothing about, uh, about increased medical training or ability to recognize what a seizure is or, or appropriate response to a, an inmate having a seizure. Well, that, that wouldn't be in the use of force policy. That would be in training that we put on with the deputies in terms of recognizing mental illness and responding appropriately to mental illness. Do you foresee uh, firing, that deputies will be being fired? Um, I, I realize that they're short-staffed because we are so determined to pack our jails with people that don't need to be there. Uh, and I would suggest that the best way to deal with the problem is not to put so many people into the system in the first place, but are you going to attempt to get rid of some of the bad actors by bringing on new deputies? Yes, we are, we are addressing that. The uh, disciplinary matrix is being revised, um, and that's coming out shortly. That uh, spells out some very stiff penalties for violation of the use of force policies, including termination when appropriate. I think many look forward to uh, the successful termination of people found to have been acting uh, uh, so as to cause the death of inmates unnecessarily. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Hello, my name is Rashawn Bliss. Um, I uh, have a few questions just about, I've read this, um, the kind of overview, um, and uh, in good faith, I have to say, I'm quite pleased um, about the 
um, creation of a duty to intervene um, by sheriffs who witness inappropriate force. Um, and I noticed that it says that they have that duty to intervene um, to stop the use of inappropriate force where there's a reasonable opportunity. So I want to ask, what? how does the sheriff's department define reasonable opportunity when it comes to the requirement of, of, other, of deputies to intervene in uh, use, inappropriate uses of force? What's a reasonable you opportunity? You want to, do you have any, the, the people that? There, there, are, there are certain situations in, in the facility where we have remote access to what's going on in, in the facilities. So we do have officers that are working in control centers. So under those circumstances, if someone is not actually there or present during the incident, but as can be remotely viewing it, that's where that kind of comes into play, where they have a, re re a reasonable responsibility to get a hold of somebody to let them know what's going on to try to stop what, they're, what they may be viewing. So we're trying to cover a lot of this from, from multi-angles in, in different, uh, different areas in the jail. Like I said, mm -hmm. we have control centers on every floor. We have a main control center on our first floor. So we're looking at trying to, to make sure that we're encompassing everything that may or may not be going on and, or it's happening in, inside the facility during these incidents. And the aspect of reasonableness is, is an attempt to, to recognize that there may be situations where, where a deputy can't react. Um, and so we want to take that into consideration as well. So that's why we, we talk about um, when it's reasonably possible that they're expected to intervene. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I thank you for that example. I hadn't even considered, you know, the viewing in cameras. Um, but my real thought was the scenario like Marvin Booker or uh, Michael Marshall, where there are several deputies standing around watching an incident, um, and there was what seems like, and in a, by the new standards, inappropriate force by not releasing body weight pressure uh, after someone has stopped struggling. Um, so my question is, in a situation where the sheriffs, there's, a, there's deputies that is um, standing in a, a room where inappropriate force is being applied, when would, when would intervening be unreasonable? I'm trying to, I'm really trying to get a sense of what happens in a situation where there's a pile on um, and there's a, a, a concern about inappropriate force from one deputy in the room. Um, how does that, is, is, is that going to be considered reasonable um, for them to intervene and say something or even do something to, to remove uh, an officer, a, a deputy who's acting inappropriately? Kevin Swift, do you have it? Please. Um, part of my responsibility is putting this training on for deputies. So one of the examples, I'm sorry, it's for the camera. one of the examples I always give them is a reasonableness. If you had a deputy that stand there having a conversation with someone, they strike an inmate, mm -hmm. okay? There's no opportunity for them to intervene, sure. right? Now, on the same token, if me and the major here are involved in a situation, we gain control of the person, and I don't get up right away, his responsibility is to say, hey, Cap, get up. You need to hop up. That's a reasonableness. Right, there's time to act. There's time for them to do something that's reasonable to be done. So that's 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 the example I give them. So a big part of that is, do they have time to actually do something? Mm -hmm. And if there is that time, they're expected to do it. Right, they're expected to intervene and take the steps necessary to change that. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that may just be the other example I give is if they see something that's escalating. Right, tempers. Mm -hmm. Right, someone starts getting angry. I also tell them, you know what, we have a duty to look out for each other and say, hey, step back. You know what, you're getting too close to this, let me deal with it. So that's another instance of intervening where it hasn't gone to excessive or inappropriate force. Mm -hmm. 
but those are the examples that I give in training to kind of help, help draw that line if that is beneficial at all. It, continue, it continues to be helpful and clarify. Um, I th I'm interested, and I know that many of my community will be interested in a written definition of what constitutes reasonable, um, because that is the piece that gets our community um, hurt and killed quite often, and officers or deputies let off without any kinds of consequences, because reasonable is a very broad word that people disagree on deeply. Um, so I'm wondering, is, is there a place where reasonableness is defined in any of the use of force policies? Any of the policies at all? They, they do define reasonable and necessary in the policy. Is that the whole policy? This is, is that this the? Is the, this is the policy. Okay. This is just the screen. Excellent. Yes. And the whole the whole policy is available online as well. Great. Yep. If you go there, it'll give you, there's actually uh, two definitions, or two, two, a two-part definition, and then also uh, a note on the, on the website. Excellent. Thank you for that. I'll have to check the whole thing out. Um, so wanted to also say, uh, please do, Sheriff Furman, consider the use of force in deputies' evaluations. I think that goes completely without saying. It should be the next thing you do. Um, the last thing I want to ask a question about is uh, in this number 21, at least in the short version here, um, it says that it provides for expanded guidelines and a preparation of written reports um, regarding the use or attempted use of force, including who must write a report. Can you help me understand who must write a report? in a use of force or, or uh, attempted use of force? Everybody that's involved uh, or, or witnesses the force. They all write their own reports? They all write their own reports. Are they allowed to talk to each other before? They're, they're separated and, and made to write the reports. Um, part of that is, and, and as we kind of move through the, the phase here of uh, um, bringing on more resources, obviously to get people relieved so that they can go and sit down and, and write the report, that's a staffing issue as well, a resource issue. And so as we start to bring more deputies on, that's going to allow us to have the staffing to relieve these people. And I think not just to, to write the report, I think when we talk about staff well-being, I think it's important that when they're involved in an incident um, of that nature that we need to get them just relieved so that they can kind of gather themselves and, and uh, not go right back into that situation. Sure, sure. Yeah, definitely understand that. Um, and I'm interested in uh, similar, especially because of the history of this department, um, of law enforcement relations uh, and community here, I'm interested in a similar standard being applied um, that's applied to us when me and my friends are stopped, um, we're suspected of criminal activity, we are separated and we do not get to talk to each other uh, before we're made to give our accounts of what's happening or what's been going on. Is there a similar standard that's going to be applied to deputies. Yes, that's addressed in the policy as well. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. If I may, I have sure. um, actually two things uh, to address that what Robert raised. Um, one is the issue of bad apples or bad actors and the accountability for those folks. Um, and uh, wholeheartedly agree and in some of my conversations with deputies who also want to see bad apples uh, gotten rid of, um, who also um, tarnish the work that they do. But I also, um, I think, struggle with um, good people who find themselves or do bad things. And so there's a book called The Lucifer Effect, which looks at when people come into um, law enforcement type or military type of situations, and they come in for all of the right reasons, but then end up um, 
using force or violating people's rights. What happens to them in that process? And so the Colorado Latino Forum um, a couple years ago put together a 20-page report because we were concerned about not just focusing on individual bad actors, because I think those are the ones that we can all rally around to say, get rid of those people. But what happens in the system, the system that creates um, the possibility for, for these things to happen. And what we instead looked at is not just the Sheriff's Department, but the continuum of the entire system from the decision to contact from Denver police all the way up to the mayor's office. Where is the accountability throughout the whole system to create a better barrel, if you will, um, rather than just looking at individual actors? So that's one thing. And the other thing I think that a, a really important point that you also brought up was around the rising jail population. I think that um, you know it hasn't gotten the kind of coverage yet um, that it should. I know that the Denver Post has, has, has written on it, but in terms of our community to really recognize and to be aware that the jail population is on the rise. And you know, the Denver voters were made a deal with years ago when the jail expansion was approved that we wouldn't need a new jail this soon. And yet we're already operating um, at 92% um, capacity for you know, several times uh, already through, throughout this, this first part of the year, that's a problem. That's a problem when we're opening, gonna open up an old jail facility to take on the overflow of people from the downtown jail. Because you can't abuse people in a jail who shouldn't be there in the first place. And so when we see people with low-level offenses or a $100 bond um, being injured, there's a whole other larger conversation that needs to happen. So in terms of voters to be really aware and to wake up to the fact that um, you know, jail expansion may be coming again, and unless we do something to you know, stem the tide and really demand of our decision makers to do more and to have a sense of urgency to stop the rising jail population, um, you know, don't be surprised when another uh, bond initiative comes forward that we're asked to vote on because we're overcrowded. see anything that's changing that's going to prevent someone like Michael Marshall from being done to death in the jails. So, you know, I'm, yes, people who are marginally bad and can be retrained, that's all well and good, but what is going to happen so that people like Marshall, Michael Marshall, who are mentally ill and, and Marvin Booker, don't end up dead in our jails? Mm -hmm. So, it, it, as far, and as far as the bond, uh, yeah, we need to repudiate that effort. Mm -hmm. We need we need to nip it in the bud and and let our elected officials know that there's not going to be any further jail expansions for the indefinite future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you come to the mic and give us your name, please. My name is Alfonso Suazo. Um, there was a couple a couple of the people who have raised some points here, and I just kind of like want to get maybe um, a direct answer from uh, Sheriff Furman. What is your change management strategy long-term? Uh, do you have a change manager in place? Do you have a change management plan to be able to initiate a lot of the um, uh, uh, use of force processes, reducing jail populations, cultural competency with um, our officers, community um, competency with those officers also to be able to um, 
be able to in integrate into the community to be part of that community. What is that change management plan? Because I haven't really heard anything that is comprehensive to that area. Mm -hmm. I, I hear a lot about training, and that's a portion of it, but it's a very small portion of it when you're dealing with internal marketing, external marketing, community outreach, those kind of things. What is that change management strategy? And would that ever be made public? It's, it's, it's multifaceted, and you're right. It, it involves training. Training's a piece of that. It's not the whole thing. Um, it involves, we're talking about a culture change. We're talking about um, getting people within a system to, to change the way that they look at people. And, uh, and so a, a huge part of that is um, the strategic focus that we have, which is uh, focusing on people, uh, focusing on our staff and their well-being, focusing on the inmate population, um, seeing them as, as individuals and not just inmates, um, but looking at the sanctity of life, and then focusing on, on our community. Um, you know, it's all about building relationships and, and understanding what those relationships are and the relationships between supervisors and, and the deputies, relationships between deputies and the inmates, uh, relationships between our staff and the community. Um, that's a huge piece of this and, and, and building those relationships and building those bonds. And so um, a huge piece of what we're doing right now is this resource piece. Um, we have been show, so short-staffed um, that it's been really hard to do anything, even in terms of, you know, we can put out new policy. I don't even have enough staff right now to get people relieved to go really read that policy and be, be comprehensive about it. And so um, a focus right now, a huge focus that we have is getting this, the right staff in place, um, going through these, these, you know, we had 1,900 applications for our first mega class that we, we whittled down to, to uh, 80 individuals that went through that first academy. Um, we need to get these people on the floors. We need to get this relief in place so that we can get our deputies relieved. Um, so that we can start looking at their well-being, we can get them time off, um, so that they're making good decisions. Um, we're going to continue to to focus on this idea of people and relationships. We've got a couple of different things that we're uh, working on in terms of an internal communication program, um, with looking for and identifying things like successful de-escalation. Um, you know, all, we, we all look all the time at use of force incidences. We look at we can tell you how many people have completed a suicide in the jail. Uh, but we can't tell you how many times we've avoided, successfully avoided a suicide, because those are things that are very hard to, to measure. Um, you know, you may have uh, diverted somebody from uh, attempting suicide because of the way that you talked to them at intake or because of a resource that you gave them. Uh, that's very difficult to measure. And so I think one of the things that we're, we're really focusing on, on now is um, identifying and helping staff identify when they successfully use de-escalation. They do it every day. Um, they do it hundreds of times a day. Um, many times we don't see the result of it because there, are no, there is no result. When you successfully de-escalate a situation, there is no incident that comes from that. Um, and so we're, we're putting together some, some, uh, some campaigns, some programs to uh, help staff identify those, um, to celebrate those with them and help them focus on the good stuff that they're doing. Um, you know, 95% of the staff are there dealing with these inmates in, in a remarkable way every day. Um, and we're, we want to focus on that and focus on the positive as well as looking at and, and figuring out how to um, reduce the number of force incidences that we have. So that, that's an ongoing thing. And that's, you know, once we get our staffing on board here and we start developing ongoing training, um, we want to do training outside of just sending people to in-service. Um, we want to do an ongoing mentoring uh, relationship with our supervisor. Again, it's going to depend on the staffing that we can get, the resources. Um, but train our, our supervisors to go in and do what, we, what really they need to be doing. Um, they should not be behind a desk looking at schedules or filling the roster. They should be up helping the deputies understand uh, what it is that we're looking for in terms of de-escalation, in terms of building relationships with the inmates, um, helping them, giving them the resources, identifying when they may be stressed out 
and maybe be having a hard day and, and we need to get them relieved. Uh, we're, we see that already. We've had staff that have um, you know, gone up and, and gone to a, a fellow deputy and said, look, you know, you, you're pretty stressed out. You need, to, you need to go somewhere else right now and, and take a break. Um, so, but we need to have the staff to do that. We need to have, to have the resources to do that. So as we start getting these resources on board, um, all of these things are going to start falling into place. Do you have a change management plan in place? That is the ch I'm not sure what you're referring to. Change management, change management is a structure that you look at where you have a change manager who, who is responsible for making sure all the components, be it training, be it, uh, uh, be it community outreach, internal communication, mm -hmm. um, the person who is responsible for making sure that process is followed so that if a person ends up having to file a report, they have the correct information to you know um, say, okay, hey, sergeant, this person needs yep. the overtime pay. You know, you need to give them that allocation. We, we do have an individual so, that, is, that right now is part of the public, the uh, uh, Office of Public Safety, and we're in the process of transfer, transferring that to the Sheriff's Department. Okay, um, uh, somebody that would is responsible for looking at these. Uh, we've also developed it and have a proposal in place for a um, an audit type team um, that would go through and, and ensure that these reform efforts um, and the standards are being followed, the policies are being updated, um, and that we're keeping up with all of these changes. And Alfonso, if I can just also briefly respond to your question. Um, I agree with what uh, the sheriff has said. Um, and I was, would also add, however, that, you know, in the last budget allocation, the sheriff's department got $24 million, yeah. right? And so, and that was to address a lot of the things that the sheriff is talking about. But non, not one penny of that went to reducing the jail population. That's part of the change management process, mind you. I mean, figuring out the strategy, and what, that's what I meant by external communication within the community, and, and thank you for reminding me of that, mm -hmm. because that was a point I did want to raise, because part of that change management is making sure you do bring down that jail population, working with the courts, working with, um, uh, with the district attorney's office, because there, we need to look more at alternative sentencing. We need to look at petty offenses and individuals who are held on, you know, something as small as a $1,000 bond but being held for months at a time. And mind you, that's a population that the Carter Coalition for the Homeless serves. These are individuals who are not really served inside the jail population and much less that are not, um, uh, it shouldn't even be something that the Denver sheriffs should be responsible for managing because of their mental illness and other issues. Right, so I think that when we're talking about relief for staff, we need to simultaneously also be talking about the reduction of the jail population. So if it's, we just need more staff, we just need more staff, rather than we need to reduce the jail population, we need to reduce the jail population, things can get lost in that. Um, one of the most effective ways, I think, at reducing recidivism is having effective programs. That's another area where the Sheriff's Department really needs to step up its game to be able to have more effective and efficient and integrated programs, work more cooperatively with the community, um, because the goal is to not have people in there who don't belong in there and not have them come back, um, but instead to be able to lead productive lives. That's what was directly what my point is with regards to a change management plan. Is that put in the change management plan? Is it documented? It, it's all part of the yeah. It's all part of the reform process. It's all part of what we're looking for. Um, you know, we're we're putting together some additional resources for our um, research and development team. Um, you know, we we need to understand what our population looks like and why they're coming to custody. And so, um, 
like everything else, if we want to, we need to be able to measure it. And so um, part of that resource is, is getting our, our analytics unit up and running with some additional staffing so that we can look at some of these stats, uh, so that we can go to these groups and these, these community groups and say, look, here, here's what our population in the jail looks like right now, and here's what they're being brought in for. Um, so that's a critical piece of that as well. And the reason why I want to emphasize that is it needs to be in black and white because it's one thing to say, hey, we want to create these programs right. for, the, for those individuals with regards to reform, with regards to getting them out, you know, reducing population, with regards to providing programming. If it's not in print, then yep. it's just a promise. Those, those are all verbal. addressed within various reform recommendations. Um, that at this point, we've had to prioritize the way that we're, we're implementing them um, and getting these resources in, in place uh, so that we can, we can follow through with some of the other recommendations is, is, is why we're where we're at. Mr. Swanson, I understand you had a part in developing this new policy. Thank you for taking the time to contribute that way. Everybody, and got great leadership here too. My name is Cynthia Wake, and I just had a couple questions. Um, what was the involvement of the police union in the drafting of this policy? Um, what influence do they have and are they supportive of the changes that are being made? Um, and secondly, is there an anonymous way that officers and staff can report infractions or things that they're concerned about without having to worry about retaliation? And thirdly, um, all of the facilities um, has there been an evaluation of places in the facility that may not have access to cameras, places where something could happen that no one can see? So those are my three okay. questions. You want to address the, uh, the uh, involvement piece of the committee? Um, but, well, so just for a point of clarification, sure. uh, Cynthia, is you mean the Sheriff's Union? Right, um, Fraternal Order of Police. Yeah. And based on their influence um, with the members um, setting the right expectations and setting the right changes, changes in culture, are they supportive of doing that? And how can they be instrumental in helping you implement the plan? Well, they were involved in the committee. Um, there were several. Uh, uh, we, we had several command officers that were involved in the committee in the development. We had several members of the FOP uh, that were invited, and, and they all participated at different levels. Um, but they were they were there. Um, you know, in terms of their the, everybody's agreement, I think Ms. Calderon pointed out earlier, um, everybody didn't agree all the time. Um, I think though that they did a really good job of letting everybody express their opinion um, and having their their voice heard. Um, they went back and, and evaluated and they looked at um, and they gave consideration to everybody's comments. Um, so I think everybody was heard. Um, how they're going to respond to it, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think change is hard. Um, I, I think anytime you try to bring something new into a group, and especially with, with something like this, this was done, um, you know, with, with committee work. And so it wasn't a situation where um, they took, you know, here's a draft and sent it out to everybody and says, here, tell us, tell us what you think. And then next week, send out another draft and said, tell us what you think. Um, they would have never ac accomplished anything that way. And so I think the nature of the committee work, um, there was some confidential 
um, work being done there because they, they wanted to work as a group. Um, and that, that involved uh, members of the community, it involved members of the, the city and members of the FOP. Um, but I think in terms of the general, um, the general membership of the FOP, I, I, think, um, I think there's gonna be some hesitation when it, when, when, as they start to, to see this until they have the opportunity to read it fully they have the opportunity to sit down in this, these uh, familiarization trainings and the, the in-service trainings um, until they can see um, what it's really about. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's going to be tough for them. You know, change is hard. Change is hard for anybody. And so um, I, I think in the absence of a lot of information as this was being developed, I think um, you know, people tend to um, catastrophize and they tend to, uh, when they don't know what something is, they tend to go to the, this is the, the worst that it could be. And so um, I'm anxious for them to see it. It was released to them this morning, um, right before we released it to the press. And so they've all had the opportunity now um, to look at it. And, and as I said, we're going to start the in-service training here in, next week and, and give them the opportunity to ask questions and to uh, kind of work through those things. So. Um, I'm confident that, that they're going to, to embrace it once they, once they fully understand what it is. Um, your other question involved uh, complaints. Um, there, there are opportunities. Um, just like the inmates, we officers are able to call the, the monitor's office and file anonymous complaints um, that we look into. Uh, we have some very strong uh, policies against retaliation. Um, as sheriff, I will not tolerate retaliation. Um, and, and so. Um, we've got that in policy. We've got several avenues where individuals can call up and, and make reports anonymously um, or not anonymously. And, and, uh, um, and so we have that in place. Um, uh, with regard to cameras, we've got, um, we've got a ton of cameras in the facilities. Uh, we understand there are some blind spots. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, camera surveys done uh, where they've looked and they've identified where blind spots are. And, and so we've got a list of those that were, um, you know, again, that's a budgetary item. Um, we're, at, we're at a point now with our facility where the, uh, the downtown detention center is, is coming on six years old now. Uh, so we're starting to see some, some wearing out of the, the equipment. And so uh, part of our budget proposal is to replace, um, start a replacement program for our cameras. We understand that that's a very important aspect of what we do um, in terms of monitoring and, and accountability. And so we've addressed that. Um, we, we, we've gone to the point of, of doing some camera surveys so that we understand where the blind spots are, um, but haven't had the opportunity to make um, make some budgetary requests for those at this point. Thank you. And Cynthia, I just wanted to, to follow up. Um, and you and I have done community organizing together, so we also know how important it is to get voices who may not otherwise be heard, heard. Um, and it's also related to uh, Nita's point earlier, is how do you actually measure change? Um, so uh, our subcommittee on use of force, the training and transparency subcommittee came up with a survey to actually measure um, where deputies' perceptions are and civilian staff about, um, you know, not only just the use of force policy, but the relationship between stress on the job and incidents of uses of force and what was causing stress. And Sheriff Furman signed off on it, and I'm, um, I'm glad that we, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of data. We shouldn't be afraid of people's input. And so that survey is going to be going out uh, later this month to deputies because, you know, not everybody's on these committees, and not everybody's voice has been heard. And so this is an opportunity for people to anonymously say where they're at with the climate of the Sheriff's Department so that as these changes become implemented, are we able to actually me measure change around perception and attitude uh, as time goes on. And it's gonna be an ongoing survey. Right, in, in cooperation with the University of Colorado Denver um, School of Education. Good, thank you. Mm -hmm.
Thank you. Yes. I, I, I didn't come you, for this reason. Oh, excuse me, would you give your name? Oh, I'm Josephine McCrory. <laughs> Thank you for hearing me. But listening to everyone, um, I'm 68 years old, so I grew up in another era where police were police men, <laughs> and you respected them, and you did as they asked you to do, and you kept your mouth shut, okay? Uh, if you were intoxicated and you talked back, you got the you got the wrath. Okay, wasn't treated disrespectfully. Your own choice of behavior is what got you where you're at. Okay. Um, secondly, um, how many people go into jails nowadays? That I, I hear mention of three people that were killed in the jails. Uh, uh, because of excessive force, and that's very sad. Their lives are precious, I understand that, okay? But officers are people too. They're not robots, and they have a breaking point. And after being harassed and harangued for hours on end by someone, I think it would be pretty hard for all of us to sustain our composure. Thirdly, um, so what kind of a um, person would you release from jails to make space for someone else? Who, who would you pick? That's my question, Ms. Calderon, mm -hmm. that would be able to walk out of jail after being arrested, uh, the case looked at, the people, uh, subjected to their uh, behavior. Uh, I witnessed uh, a neighbor get arrested and he acted like a fool. Three hours of community time mm -hmm. for the Denver Police Department while he kicked and screamed inside of a vehicle, a police vehicle yelling and screaming and kicking his feet inside the vehicle. How long does an officer have to put up with that? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I don't think that you should hammer him to death, <laughs> but I think uh, that, you know, we're trying to feminize a part of society that helps us. Those people sometimes that get incarcerated are the first ones that would dial 911 and ask for your help. I, I witnessed a person standing on a street holding a sign to murder police. That really made me mad because when I call, you guys answer. The Denver police answers and I'm grateful. I'm a grandparent raising two grandchildren and I'm teaching them to respect officers and the office they hold. Maybe the person's tired and he's a jerk. You still respect the office. That's the way I was raised. I didn't always act that way, but it finally took hold. And so you want them to pass that and so, to the police department? Absolutely, absolutely, okay. right? Yes, there, there, there's bad apples everywhere. 
I realize that. And there's people that uh, uh, need to be, uh, they have a mindset changed from the old days. My purpose of coming here tonight was because of what happened in Orlando, Florida. That, my, that, type of, that type of weapon is on the loose in America. And I think when somebody purchases a, a, a weapon like that, that the police department should have a locker room for those weapons, somebody logging them in and logging them out. And when you're drunk or on drugs, or have an issue with somebody else's lifestyle and want to go murder 49 people because you don't agree with them, it would give them a little cool-off time to get that type of a weapon. The days of uh, bearing arms was in the cowboy days. I need a posse to come with me because there was a bank robbery, okay? We don't have that nowadays. We have huge forces available. How much time does it take to go through a crime scene like happened in Orlando, Colorado Springs, San Bernardino? How long did it take? How many dollars when that person would have purchased something on the internet and have it shipped to their local police department? It could have stayed that man's mind when he had to go and say, I would like to get my weapon out today. Thank you so much for your comments. Okay. Thank you. Are there others who have comments? We only have about 10 minutes left, so I want to make sure everyone, hold on just a minute, Mr. Chase. We want to make sure everyone who wants to have something to say has an opportunity to. My name is Gordon Hamby, and I'm actually, um, excuse me, from Commerce City, where the city is in the process of starting an oversight board. Um, so I'm here primarily to get a little education and such. But I was going through the recommendations and I was curious, and uh, Sheriff had just mentioned uh, low tolerance or no tolerance for uh, retaliation. But I was looking at recommendation number nine, and it says uh, revised grievance policy in the inmate handbook to make clear that inmates should attempt to resolve grievances informally unless the grievance alleges officer misconduct. So I'm curious informally how, what type of grievances, because it seems like an inmate that's perceived as going around the back of people is gonna cause retaliation. Grievances are, are have to do with any really anything at any level within, within the housing unit or, or really any piece of the operation. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have our housing units and we have deputies inside the housing units. And so an inmate has the ability to file a grievance at any time really for any reason. And, and, and those typically would go through a process um, where they would get answered and they, they would go to, um, to the major and, and they would look at them and he would distribute them to the individuals that would be responsible for answering them. Um, the reason we encourage the inmates to, to try to informally resolve their grievances is because many times it's much quicker. If it's something like I have a hole in my shoes and I need a new pair of shoes. We would much rather, rather than fill out the paperwork, and now we have this whole process that we have to go through where we log the grievance and, you know, send it out, and, and it's going to take much longer than if he just goes to the deputy at the, in his housing unit and says, can you get me a new pair of shoes? Um, so that would be an example of handling that grievance in an informal manner, um, working with the deputy in those housing units. Um, that's what they're there for. Now, obviously, if it's something that's a more elevated type of a thing that the deputy can't deal with, if it's mm -hmm. a, a medication issue, a medical issue, 
um, if he's complaining about the, the, the uh, behavior of the deputy himself. Um, we have the, the, the inmates have the ability, again, they can file anonymous reports to the monitor's office, but they also, we have a form that they can fill out and a box they put those grievances in where they would go um, circumvent that deputy. Um, okay. And then it would go through the process. But that, that would be an example of, of for informally trying to resolve that grievance. Okay, but in a sense, even informally kind of still goes through the system in a sense? Well, if, if they can resolve it with the deputy, then it doesn't get, go through the system. And that's what we're trying to avoid. I mean, we get hundreds and hundreds of grievances a day, mm -hmm. um, and, and it takes up a lot of time to go through those grievances. Sure, and sure. Uh, many of them could be resolved if the deputy, if the inmate would just go to the deputy and, and try to resolve it that way. Okay. And that also kind of hinges on education mm -hmm. for the deputies and what we are talking about earlier as far as uh, the way we look at people. Right. The way they're judged and things like exactly. that, and not being a pain in the butt. And that's but. part of that process as well. Is as you know, as we get these grievances in, and if it's a grievance that, that we felt like the deputy could could have dealt with, mm -hmm. then we'll take that and and go back to the deputy and, and give it to a supervisor and say, look, you you could have resolved this at your level before it even got to this level. And okay. so part of that is empowering the deputy and letting them know that, that yeah. we're giving them the the, the empowerment to, to answer these and to resolve these issues. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks. Other comments before you get the mic again, Mr. Chase? Any other comments? Okay. So you I have just want to ask a brief question of, of the sheriff. Having said that part of the reform plan is to work with other elements of the criminal justice system to reduce in, incarceration, would you now, and with our jail running 92% full, and the, the, which was supposed to not be needed in the first place, would you now make a public statement calling on the Denver District Attorney and Denver's courts to moderate their imposition of sentences of incarceration in the jail? Yes or no? To moderate it in what sense? To, do, to moderate, to not impose as many or as long, to act, to reduce. You said that you want to work with, mm -hmm. they are the elements of the criminal justice system primarily responsible for the number of people showing up in your jail. Correct. Yes. The system is bulging. They have been working overtime. They have been working faster than anyone thought to put people in that jail. Would you now make a general public statement calling on them to moderate their imposition of sentences of confinement yes, in the we, jail? We've yes been working no? with the judges. The judges have sat in committees with us, and, and we're talking about the jail population. And, Is that a no? What's so our, a no. Yes, I'm asking if you would make a public statement asking them the, to do the these things I'm, as the opposed to private statements in committee. Right. That's the, what the statement answering. I'm making is that that we yes we are working with the judges. We are requesting that they look at who they're they're sending to the jails. We're look we're talking with uh, the the police department and other agencies and, and everybody who brings people into our jail. Thanks, but that's not my question. My question okay. was, would you make a public statement requesting that they act in this way? Yes or no? Yes. You would. Well, please do so because okay. it's. Overdue. I just did. I just okay, did. Okay, well, uh, it's historic. I think that's. I think All right. I was, I'm inspired by uh, Mr. Suarez's, is it? Suazo's questions, which seem entirely germane. Uh, this is a concrete step which hasn't been taken. And working with them behind the scenes to do these things is not quite the same thing as a public acknowledgement that we are reaching the, the limits of the jail and faster than anyone expected. And we have one other person who has another comment to make. I appreciate your willingness to make that statement. Hope you'll keep making it. Um, one of the, I just, I know it's not part of the use of force policy, uh, but since we're here, um, Sheriff Furman, what has changed 
about the use of about the way that spit guards are used since that played such a pivotal role in the death of Michael Marshall and seems to be such a clear place for reexamination. We have reexamined it. We're working on, on policy um, to change uh, the parameters of that and to spell out more clearly when it's used and when it's not used. But it's not complete yet. It's, no, it's not. Do you have a sense of how soon that change will probably be implemented? Soon, very soon. Great, thanks. Thank you so much. Um, appreciate your being here, and we appreciate uh, Ms. Calderon and for, um, Sheriff Furman for taking the time to spend the evening with us. Thank you. And um, we we'll want to thank uh, Channel 8 for videotaping this session so it will be available um, for your um, review and others um, over the next several weeks. Um, again, thank you for coming. Have a good evening. Thank you.